0: This sermon by Terry Virgo is the first of a three-part series on grace given at the Vineyard UK Leaders Conference in January 2007. Thank you you so much. It's a real privilege and joy to be with you. I certainly do hold the Vineyard very much in my own affection and respect. And uh, it has indeed been a joy to uh, have had... John and Carol Wimber and Vineyard Conferences uh, in Brighton, our privilege to host them sometimes in the early days, do the admin behind the scenes because we're there and then gradually developing friendship and then on of course to John himself and there are several here in the room that uh, I count my friends and glad to know you. I'm looking forward to making more friends in these few days that I'm with you. Thanks for your warm welcome. I've been asked if I would to speak on the theme of grace and I'm very, very happy to do that. It's certainly a subject that has changed my life, the experience of God's grace. I was converted from a non-Christian background, totally non-Christian, when I was 16 through my sister being saved at the Billy Graham thing in London and uh, coming home saying she was born again. I said, what's that? And uh, anyway, I got saved. And uh, after a few years... Um, actually went full-time, became a pastor and so on. I would say it was several years into uh, trying to serve God with all my heart, as far as I knew how, that I suddenly came into an understanding of the grace of God that was life-changing. Took all the pressure off. I know for myself and I know from fellowshipping with others and pastoring for many years now that many of us can live under a kind of cloud of heaviness. Am I doing enough? Oh, that you would really set me free and Lord Jesus, and, and we know we're converted. We, we love the Lord, but there can often be that kind of heaviness over us. That have we done enough yet, Lord, to to please you? And when I saw the grace of God, I I, I just thought, oh, I can't believe it! It says it's about the resurrection. They couldn't believe for joy uh, that He was alive. And I I found for myself when I saw the grace of God, I could hardly believe for joy. I thought, this is so releasing, and so I'm absolutely delighted. Uh, to bring this theme to you. I want to just commend a couple of books. There's an outstanding stall outside. I've been looking through it, some fine, fine books. And then there's one or two by my wife's husband, okay? So <laughs> God's lavish grace will help you pursue the themes. I know sometimes people clutch at grace and think, oh, I've seen it, and then gradually go back into a kind of heaviness again. You need to really get it into your heart. We can only touch two or three themes in these three mornings and sometimes one can get hold of what people call cheap grace in other words you have just dropped the standard and that's certainly not what i'm talking about so i would commend to you god's lavish grace i can honestly say i get lots of letters from people who say it has been life-changing and i commend it to you for that reason and also i want to applaud you as uh, an aggressive church planting movement you have my real admiration for that and uh, there are not many around and i want to affirm you for that And uh, The Tide is Turning is a very recent book as well on the bookstool and uh, expresses my own conviction that we're in a new day actually. Although you can look around and see much that discourages in our country at the moment, morally and so on, yet there is a new surging thing happening. We had a prophecy many years ago that the underground streams would break the surface and become visible. And I read recently in The Telegraph, that 1,000 new churches have opened in England over the last seven years. And that's against 450 Starbucks. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that uh, statistic and some other things in the opening chapter. And then some biblical principles from various Bible stories of when the tide turned. When things that looked bad began to look quite, quite different. And I honestly believe we're on the edge of that as church after church opens and these magnificent stories of people who have no knowledge of God are finding loving, sensitive Christians crossing the road and getting involved in their lives. And it's just great. And I just commend you for it and I want to encourage you to be more and more encouraged with that. So we're looking into Romans, please, if you have the scripture open with you. We're going to, in these three mornings looking somewhat at the grace of god just going to read one verse then we'll pray then we'll get into the subject romans and chapter five we're starting in i'm reading from the nasb so you may find one or two words differ if you use a different translation it's a whole long passage and i can't really Read it all, but in it, Paul is comparing and contrasting the results of Adam's sin and how he ruined the human race and Jesus' obedience and triumph and how he affected all who are in him. That's what the whole passage is about. But we're just going to take out one verse, and that is verse 17. Romans 5:17. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for the high privilege of knowing you. We thank you, you delivered us from our blindness, our preference for evil, our ignorance. We thank you, Lord Jesus, you've shown us something of your mercy and kindness and faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for your patience with each one of us, your desire for our good. Lord, we welcome you. We love worshipping you. We love drawing near. And Father, we thank you for your promise. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. So we pray, Father, right now for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Let me encourage you just individually. Just ask God to speak to you. The Spirit of Revelation. You might see truth in such a way that it blesses you, sets you free. Come, Holy Spirit. Teach us what you have done through the cross, through the resurrection, through the coming of grace to our lives. Bless truth to us now, we pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in that one verse that I read to you, there's a very vivid phrase. It says that we are those who are reigning in life. It's a beautiful expression of a happy, fulfilled Christian life. We are reigning in life. Now, that doesn't stand alone in the Scripture. There are other similar phrases. It says elsewhere that we are more than conquerors. Not just conquerors, but more than conquerors. Again, elsewhere it says that He always leads us In his triumph. Now, these are superlative statements. Reigning in life, more than a conqueror, always in triumph. And, uh, you know, that's meant to be the Christian experience. And I think for most of us, we think, oh, yes. But sadly, we wouldn't feel, yeah, that exactly describes me. Actually, that's the way it is. That's what everybody says about me. Um, (laughs) We don't tend to feel that, but we can feel a kind of, yeah, Lord, surely that's what you came to me for. Surely that's what I was expecting. And we can have moments where we just long for more of being a winner, not a loser. Uh, As the Bible says, the head, not the tail. On top, not under the circumstances so much. Not so vulnerable. We're supposed to be reigning. We're supposed to be triumphing according to the promises of Scripture. And we can have kind of moments where we think, yes, Lord, I will give myself to this. And I guess most of us know what it is to have ups and downs and we can have moments of what we might call fresh dedication. Maybe at such a conference as this, where you uh, come away to be with the Lord and different things are said and happen. You think, Lord, here I am, the beginning of a new year. Sometimes it is that sort of a time when we, you know, someone gives us a new diary and uh, you know every page is virgin white. And you think, oh, I haven't messed up any of it yet. Uh, so sorry about last year, Lord. Um, but from now I will, and we can have moments when we really are stirred, and we think, "Lord, please help me." And I, I'm going to, I am going to reign in life. I'm going to. The Bible says it's there for me. Sorry, I've been a real slob this last year, but now I'm going to reign in life. And what shall I do? How can I make that happen? I know I'll, um, I'll set my alarm clock back an hour. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to seek God. Um, I'm going to read the whole Bible through this year. Uh, how many pages are there? Right, I'll divide that by 365. I'll, I'm going to read so many pages a day. I'm going to witness um, to one person every day. And, and what we can do is we can put kind of rules up there. Think, well, If I could live by those laws, I'll reign in life. If I can just do it, I'll I'll set myself these standards, I'll I'll set the rules there, I'm going to do it, I'm going to live by these laws, and then I'll reign in life. Now that's a very tragic moment. You could go away from a conference like this, having been so blessed, and go through the door which is marked, raise the banner, get the rules higher, and and say, I'm going to win. And do you know what? You've just set yourself for definite failure. The beginning of a new year, you know, set yourself new rules, new uh, things you're promising you're going to fulfill. Resolutions I'm going to keep. Only to find that by, you know, day 13, they're pointing back at you. And you're in trouble again. And sadly, we haven't read the small print. It doesn't say those who keep the rules, who get themselves under laws, reign in life. Doesn't, that's not what the small print says. What does it say in the small print? It says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. It's not so much about performance as position. Where am I in relationship to God as regards law and grace, rules and grace? Where am I? Where, where are you? Do you feel you're under law or not? The Bible says in Galatians 5.4, you who would be justified by law have fallen away from grace. Or Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. But some of us will think, well Jesus said you mustn't take away from the law and none of these things will be removed and we can be really confused. Is, is the Christian under law or not? I think many Christians wouldn't know. And many Christians will say, what's it got to do with anything? I mean, it's one of those theological things. No, it's a huge issue. Is the Christian under law or not? If I ask for a show of hands, I think, you know, some of us will be looking over and say, what's John doing? Say, oh, you yes, okay. <laughs> you know, we're not quite sure. A friend of mine was teaching in a school and uh, he had the opportunity to preach the gospel in a morning assembly and uh, he was told, you must not make an appeal he said, of course I won't make an appeal. So they said, well, you can preach the gospel, but nothing more than that. So he he preached the gospel, and he felt so much God's hand upon him. He felt he really had the hearts of the young people. So as he nearly finished the word, he said, I know obviously it's not appropriate for me to make an appeal here in the school assembly, but I am curious if I had made an appeal. How many of you? (laughs) Right. No, I'm not going to do that this morning. Though. Under law or not under law. But I do want you to turn quickly to Romans 7. If you still have your Bible open at this uh, center of Romans, I'm going to read six verses with you, which are probably the most distilled teaching that Paul gives ...regarding our relationship to law. Obviously, the whole book of Galatians is about it. But here, in half a dozen verses, there's some really helpful teaching for us. So, I'm just going to read these six verses with you. Do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law... ...that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? That sounds pretty final, doesn't it? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies... She's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God for while we were in the flesh the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death but now we've been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit not in oldness of the lesser so Paul's using an analogy here He sees the human race as married to the law. The law is rather like an overbearing husband. He has high standards and we, as his wife, are married to him. He makes his will plain to us. He says, you shall not do this, you shall not do that, you shall... And so he's with uh, real clarity and wisdom. We are subject to this husband. We are under his authority. And we can't say, well, actually, I'd like to be be married to Jesus, please. Uh, No, no, no. You can't be married to two at the same time. Quite plain in first one. Uh, You're married as long as you live. You're you're, uh, married to this husband. And he has permanent authority over you. Not only that, it's hard to argue with him. Because although he often seems to find you out and make you feel weak and small, it's no good arguing. It's no good saying to this husband... I don't agree. I think you're wrong. Because actually, you know he's right. In fact, he's always right. And you're permanently married to this perfect husband who's always right, making you see how wrong you are. And not only that, he never lifts a finger to help you. I saw one or two women just nudging their husband up there. No, no, it's not you. We're talking about the law here, okay? He doesn't actually help you. He just shows you your error holds a magnificently high standard, makes you feel inadequate and doesn't come to your aid at all to lift you to that standard and you are married to him, you cannot marry another and you're married as long as you both shall live. And Jesus said this, the law shall never pass away. So you are permanently married to an overbearing, fault-finding, unhelpful husband husband who's never going to die. Isn't Christianity wonderful? (laughs) Some people think that is what it's all about, but happily, Paul doesn't leave it there, because although the husband will never die, and it's important to understand what I am saying and what I'm not saying, quite plainly, this husband is not going to die, but he suddenly says in verse 4, therefore, my brothers, you were made to die to the law." Through the body of Christ. Verse 6. Now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. Now notice what he's saying. He's not saying the law suddenly... It's okay, the law's died, we can go to Jesus. No, he's saying something far more powerful than that. He's saying you have died to the law. What does he mean? What he means is this. That once you cry out to God, save me, you are placed in Christ. Paul's favorite phrase for a Christian is someone who is in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. And many, many verses that speak about our being in Christ. And what Christ went through is gloriously accredited to our account as though we ourselves had experienced what he experienced on our behalf. And so when Jesus lived he fulfilled the law in two ways he fulfilled the law in this he was innocent the bible says of jesus he was spotless and innocent in other words jesus broke no laws never did he say oh i'm sorry about that one today father he was totally spotless and innocent so he fulfilled the law in that way but he also fulfilled the law in a second way that the bible says cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, or it means a cross in that account. Jesus bore our sin and was our substitute. In that moment, Jesus died as though he had broken every law that had ever been written. For every person had ever broken it. He stood in our place. And the law was thoroughly vindicated. God's righteousness was thoroughly vindicated. God is just and the justifier of those who believe that Jesus took their place. Praise God. He bore our sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. He took our place. And the extraordinary thing is this. It says, You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, when Jesus died to the law, when the law was thoroughly vindicated, he was judged, cursed on the cross, Jesus exhausted the judgment of the wrath of the law against himself. And we were in him. And so we died, as it says in verse 6, you have been released from the law, having died to that by which you were bound. The Christian's relationship with the law is over because in Christ he's died to it. He's finished with it. As it says in verse 6, we have been released or discharged. It could be translated discharged The illustration that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives is of a soldier who has just done some years of military service. And at the end, maybe you're you're a soldier for a couple of years, um, and the the sergeant major shouts at you every day, and uh, tells you how horrible you are, and you jump up and down, you stand to attention. And then there comes the day when you are discharged. It's all over. And uh, you know, you can be walking across the parade ground and you've no tie on, and your jacket's over your shoulder, and you're strolling out, and the sergeant comes around the corner and says, Soldier! And he, oh, it's a serge. He, Wait a minute. I'm out. <laughs> Bye, serge. And it, it really doesn't matter how much he shouts and how the veins stand out on his neck. He can't touch you. You're out. You are discharged. You're not under his sphere anymore. The Christian is not under law. He's not under the sphere of law. He has finished his relationship with law. It's all over. The Christian is called to reign in life through the abundance of grace. It's not law keeping that's going to make you reign. That's not the ladder you're trying to climb up. God has given you a new position. It's not about your performance. How well am I doing? It's about your position. I am in Christ. And the price has already been paid. I'm up the other side discharged from the law set free from its powerful relationship over me god has done that he has discharged us from the law then it says in the next verse or verse 4 just reading on through it we were made to die to the law through the body of christ so that we might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit For God. So Paul stays with the marriage analogy. He says, You've died to the old husband in order that you might be joined to this one who was raised from the dead. Well, obviously speaking of Jesus. And joined to is using that marriage analogy that you are joined to this one who was raised from the dead that you might bear fruit for God. Now, fruit wasn't mentioned in the relationship with the old husband, the old husband didn't help you bear fruit. This new husband you're now married to is going to help you bear fruit for God. He's going to change you from the inside. He's no longer just giving you rules, do this, don't do this. The New Testament doesn't say, oh, forget the Old Testament rules, here's the new ones. No, it's a new relationship altogether. It's a new kind of a husband. In fact, it says in Galatians 3.21, the second half of that very important verse, and the whole of Galatians is all about this really, but Galatians 3.21 sums it up Very interestingly, when it says, "If a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have come through the law." If a a law had been given that could impart life, then yes, of course, we could be righteous by law. If the law, if when the if the law says, "You shall not covet." And it comes with life. If if the law had life, if it imparted life to me, you shall not covet. Boom! It's just done it to me. Hallelujah! The law set me free. I didn't notice you had a BMW. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm just free. I'm just, I'm freed from any kind of coveting because the law imparted the life. No, 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 there is no such law. If a law had been given that could impart life, then of course righteousness will come. Just give us the rules. That's all we need. Tell us a few rules. No, but it doesn't impart any life. That husband is an impotent husband. He doesn't impart any life to me. He just tells me. There's the standard. It's written in stone. Engraved in stone. It's not imparting anything to me. If it could impart life, well, yeah, then righteousness can come by the law. But Paul is saying, no, 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 he's an impotent husband. We've died happily to that old husband. We have now been raised again to live in fellowship with this new husband who is not impotent. Jesus is not impotent. He's very potent. He says, my peace I give to you. He pours out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He says, they in me, or abide in me, and I in you, you'll bear lots of fruit. So I'm not trying to change by keeping these devastating rules or imposing some more on myself. I'm changed from the inside by having lots of fellowship with my very affectionate and potent husband. Who's changing me from the inside. So I find love welling up, joy welling up. I find stimulus from God. God himself imparting his life to me. No longer a rule book, but life coming from Jesus. It's a new kind of husband altogether. Now the tragedy is, beloved, that people don't make that clear demarcation. Some people would say this, of course the law can't save you, but you must, once you're saved, you must go to the law to be sanctified. People would teach that. And nowhere does it say that in the New Testament at all. It's completely wrong. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you've finished with the law, discharged, died. It doesn't say, well, you need a bit of law and a bit of... No, no, it doesn't say that. It says the the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. Well, you must have a little bit of killing. No, no, no. It doesn't do the trick. Hallelujah. God has released us from the oppression of the law and married us to this life imparting husband. See, the tragedy is from day one when some people get saved. You You imagine our dear friend we've just heard about. Wonderful story. You know, the day comes, eventually, when he says... I've seen it all. These people are remarkable. I've tried to clean up my own act. I've tried to stop swearing. I've tried... I can't do it. I've tried to make myself worthy to be among these people and this God. And then one day they hear the gospel. one day you hear, You just believe just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. Oh, Lamb of God, I can come as I am. Wonderful, and the day the light dawns, you can receive salvation as a gift. And then someone comes up to you and says, I'm so glad you became a Christian. Yes, so am I. I'm thrilled. Well, I just want to help you a bit. Oh, great. Thanks. Now, now you're a Christian. Uh, you must always do this and this and this. And you must never, no, and don't wear that anymore. And by the way, I should get that haircut. And, and you could find what happens is people say, Oh, do this and do this. And, and you're saying, Well, oh, thank you for the gospel and, and thank you for that. Uh, I say, yeah, well, thank you for that too. And uh, I see, I have to do that as well. Okay, thank you. Uh, And that as well, okay. Oh, wonderful, I I feel so released today from the burden I used to carry. Because people quickly mingle law and grace and make people think it's up to you now to somehow keep God happy. You got saved, but now you've got to somehow keep God happy by the way you perform. And many people can't keep it up. They feel like, how do you keep it up? How can I live this kind of life? The law actually was never meant to do that. In fact, if we just stay with Romans 7 for a moment, just see what the law's role is quite explicitly in the passage. And so it says, for instance, in Romans 7, 7, we stopped at Romans 7, 6. Romans 7, 7, what should we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary... I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. So what is the function of the law, if you like? Firstly, it is to reveal sin. He says, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law provides an objective line. Now we've all got conscience. And in your conscience you can feel things are right or wrong, but consciences can get very confused, especially in a day when the whole culture has its conscience confused and people get very muddled about conscience. We need something more objective and the objective is God's holy law. You find similar in Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul says, I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law hadn't said it. John's epistle says this. Sin is the transgression of the law. It's not a social disease. It's against God. So the law is telling me that's God's holy requirement. That's the first function. It tells me the standard. Secondly, and strangely, Paul says it actually provokes sin, which is not what we would have expected. Romans 7, 8 now. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law sin is dead and i was once alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin revived or became alive and i died and this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me he's saying that it's meant to it's meant to help me but actually amazingly Paul says, the law provokes reaction. It's like walking through a nice park. You think, this is beautiful. The British know how to do parks. And then you see this sign, keep off the grass. You know, something inside you says, whose grass is it anyway? You know, something about that, keep off. It's like saying to a child, just going to the shops, you know, say, I'm just going to the shop, don't touch the cakes I've just made. You know, the cakes you've just made. There's something about the prohibition that awakens the desire. That's what Paul is saying, quite plainly in this passage. Sin came, or at least law came, and sin revived. And then he says a very strange thing. Verse 12. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Then verse 13 is a hard verse. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me. May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. What on earth is that all about? I believe what Paul is saying is this. He's made such a case, and don't forget some of the people who are reading this are Jewish people, and he's saying things that seem to be against the law. And he said, no, no, no. No, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and pure and good. So why, why can't it do the trick? Well, what it does is to demonstrate clearly that through the commandment, sin should be seen totally sinful. God has left us aware of our sin through the coming of the law, through giving the law. And the law has demonstrated my need. In other words, see, some people today in our contemporary world would feel, well, man is essentially good. Man's good. And he's getting better and better. That's what some people would think. And they just some people are deprived of good education or good housing. And they just need a better start in life. And then their essential goodness will surface. That's what many modern people think. Now, that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says our need is much greater than a few bits of better education. You might have to say education, 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 but it's not going to change the moral tone. You just get cleverer crooks. You know, it's because <laughs> the law, knowing stuff doesn't change you. Because what does the law do then? The law shows how sinful we are. Can I illustrate? There's a glass of water helpfully placed here. But I I don't know where it came from. I think it's okay. But I'm not sure. I I don't know if this is pure or not. Alright, this is an imaginary thing. I don't know if this is pure or not. Maybe it is. tell you what we'll do. Just to make sure that this which we think is essentially good, to make sure... We will add to it some imagined thing that is holy and good and righteous, like the law. I'm going to add to it this imagined thing and say, so, "Right, I add this." Now there was no question about this, which we're adding. This is good. This came down out of heaven. Now I'm going to put this in this water, which I think is okay, but I'm not sure. We'll put this in now. That's in. Right, we'll be okay now. That's right now. This. <laughs> It's absolutely disgusting. Ah! What's wrong? What, no, but what I added was good. Oh, this must have been worse than I realized. Do you understand the experiment? No? <laughs> if we, if you add something undoubtedly pure to something, you think, well, oh, it just needs a bit of help. And the help makes it worse, not better. Paul says, so... The law has demonstrated, hey, we don't need just law. We need a revolutionary change. Actually, we need to be put to death and raised from the dead in newness of life. Because the law, doesn't matter how holy it is, if it doesn't impart life, it can't change me. It's just knowing a few rules. Now that's why, beloved, that when we become Christians, it's no good having this half and half thing of trying to live the holy life by trying to develop relationship with law. Because the law cannot change you. It's not that, That's not why it was given. It was given to show you what is sinful. It was given to provoke you. It was given to show you, hey, I need saving. The law leaves me defenseless. It's, I need a saviour. And having found a saviour, I don't then go back to the law. What are you doing? Paul argues strongly that in Galatians. Because that's what was happening in Paul's day. He planted church on pure grace. And then behind him came the Judaizers and said, Ah, but if you're a Christian now, you need to do this and this and this and this to make sure you're acceptable. Because we know God for centuries and he requires all these things. Oh, I see, we better do them then. And Paul says, you are in danger of losing the gospel. Completely. What are you doing? Going back to the things that just led you to Christ. Jesus is the answer now. He is the way. You don't need a way to the way. See, sometimes if we have a season of some backsliding, and we sometimes say, Lord, I'm really sorry. It's a new year. I'm going to try harder. Now, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry I've slipped. I will come back to you, Lord. Uh, um, To come back to you, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep this rule. I'm going to keep this rule. I'm going to keep this rule. Okay, now, it's like, in order to keep your new husband happy, let's really develop our relationship with our old husband. You try that in the world; it doesn't work. No, Jesus. Jesus says in Revelation, and it's not a gospel message; it's a message to Christians in the church of Laodicea. He says, "You've got lukewarm." Yeah, I'm sorry, Lord. If anyone hears me knocking at the door and opens the door, I'll come into you. What? Just you and me again? Yeah. But I'm so. Yeah, I know you're lukewarm. Open the door. Come back to me. But I'll clean up my act first. No, no. Come to me. We finish with that husband. I am the way. We must have this relationship of love, this constantly enjoying Him, abiding in Him. He is the life. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the whole deal. We relate to Him. We don't relate to trying hard to sustain a standard that somehow vindicates me. Paul says to Timothy, the law is good, Providing you use it lawfully, knowing it's not for the righteous, but for sinners. All right, so the law is still there for sinners. Terry is not saying, don't preach the law to the lost anymore then. Just be gracious to them. No, sinners need to know the standards. Paul says, the law is good, use it lawfully. It's for sinners, not for the righteous. The righteous have come into a new relationship with God... By grace. So we reign in life through this abundance of grace. We're not under law. Thank God. We're not under law anymore. It's finished. I'm no longer trying to impress God. I've been set free from that relationship. And then the second thing, final thing, is just two things in this verse the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. The free gift righteousness is given to us as a gift now if you don't know that you're in trouble because you're trying as paul says in philippians of his contemporaries they go around trying to establish a righteousness of their own based on law instead of receiving the righteousness which is from god as a gift you're either doing one or the other you're trying to establish something you see you can be in a meeting you can uh feel, Lord, I'm, I want to walk with you. I'm going to try hard. And, I, and sometimes we're battling with a thing we feel is c- condemnation. condemnation is a heavy deal. It's, it's a feeling I'm not worthy, I'm not acceptable. And often we're trying to work ourselves free from feeling condemned. The Bible says this, the devil is the accuser of the brothers and the sisters, no doubt. He's the accuser. And it says in Revelation, he accuses us day and night. Now, it doesn't say of any other temptation that he's doing it day and night. It's the only one that says he's doing it day and night. Now, I would get from that that at least this is one of his major tools for getting Christians heads down and getting them defeated. Just accusing, you're useless, you're useless, you're a waste of time, you never will be able to live this Christian life. So, he's accusing us. Now, how do you stand against accusation? What do I do about it? How do I overcome it? How do I reign in life from this battering, of accusation now one I step out from law I'm not going to try and beat you that and then the second I receive this free gift of righteousness you see what can happen is say this right arm represents your feelings of condemnation your awareness oh I carry this around so I'm going to try and get rid of it by what shall I do well I'll, I'll read the Bible more I'll pray a bit harder I'll try witnessing to some people. And you think, I'm gradually, I'm gradually getting there. And Satan says, I'm against you. you no, know, I'm working harder at it. I'm praying harder. I'm, I'm, uh, and he said, I'm doing better. And then he suddenly says, uh, uh, heard about Julie? Uh, no, what about Julie? She fasts twice a week. I think, oh, no, fast twice a week. See, <laughs> back down a snake. See, I'm so I've got to do that as well now. So I pray and read the Bible. And fast twice a week, back up a ladder. I'm doing better. And then Satan comes along and says, how are we doing? I'm doing a lot better, thank you. Oh yeah, I'm, what are you doing? I'm praying, reading my Bible. I'm fasting twice a week. I notice you don't do that. But I fast twice a week. And then, and then Satan says, doing well. Yes, I'm doing well. I expect you're happy. I'm very happy. I expect you're proud. Yes, I'm very... Oh no, I'm very proud. <laughs> See, so people think... Oh, no, I can't win. How do you win as a Christian? How do you win when you're trying to perform to please God? You're trying hard. just you, you can go away from a conference like this. You may have had a superb time. And you go, you think, Lord, we're back together. Hallelujah. I'm so glad I went. I feel so renewed. I feel so back in fellowship. Right, so you go to bed. You wake up in the morning. Lord, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Let me just um, imagine here... Um, yeah, I'll pray. I imagine I'm one of the... Uh, I'm a wife. Yeah, Lord, I pray for my husband. Make him a blessing. Uh, Lord, bless him. Bless him at the office today. Make him a, an outstanding testimony. Let the way he does his work really shine. Let him be like a shining light in that office right through this morning. Um, that should be nice if I went to see him at lunchtime. Oh, that would be nice. I could surprise him. I could go down. I could go to the shop. I could meet him. I'll say, hello. We have like, then you suddenly have to be praying. Oh God, oh prayer, yes, prayer. Um, oh God, uh, bless my husband. Uh, what, uh, uh, the missionaries. I know, yeah, the missionaries. Oh God, bless the missionaries. Um, be with the missionaries. May they be very powerful. Um, um, bless the missionary supper on Friday. Um, uh, uh, oh yeah, the missionary supper on Friday, isn't it? I'm doing the quiche. Oh yeah, I better go. and. I've got to get some stuff. Oh, no, I know what I could do. I could, I could go down to Sainsbury's Prison. Could, I could meet my husband. That'd be fun. I'd, do, I'd meet him I'd do the shopping. And, and your brain is out there. And suddenly, a voice says to you, Oh, mighty woman of intercession, are you prevailing in the heavenlies? <laughs> And you think, no, I'm hopeless, I'm hopeless. I can't pray, I can't do it. I, oh, I'm a terrible Christian. Oh, where was I? I'll give my, do my Bible reading. Where I was, I, yeah, I remember, I was uh, 13 days behind, wasn't I? Um, uh, yeah, that's right. I was in, uh, yeah, Leviticus, that's right, Leviticus. I remember. Then the priest uh, shall take some of the blood of the horns of the altar of the fragrant incense, which is before the Lord of the tent of meeting, he shall remove the fat, of the bull, and, sin <laughs> offering the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat, which is on the entrails, and, on the two kidneys, which, the fat that's on them, which is on the loins, which is on the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove, with the kidneys, and, uh, and then Satan comes up and says, getting revelation, I will, so you think, Oh no! I'm hopeless. I can't pray. I can't understand the Bible. I'll probably have a terrible day now. Had an awful quiet time. I should probably miss the bus. I think. I'm awful Christian. I must see. Last night, oh, thank you, Jesus, for the Vineyard Conference. It was such a blessing. This morning, I'm a disaster. See, what happened between... Something terrible must have happened between here and there. Yeah, we slept through the night and nothing happened. (laughs) What happened is you suddenly are assessing your relationship with God on the basis of how well you perform, which is wrong. Righteousness is a gift. We reign in life. This is huge, dear friends. We reign in life. We are over, not under, by... The abundance of grace. In other words, we're not under law. Grace, not law. Secondly, the free gift of righteousness. I'm not trying to impress God. I found someone who did it for me. Jesus has impressed him. And he is my saviour. Now, you say, Terry, you keep on mocking, reading the Bible and praying. What's this with you? No, no, I love reading the Bible and praying. Well, I don't do it to earn brownie points. I read it to learn more. I've got all the brownie points I can manage. Jesus got them all for me and gave them to me as a gift. See, even in the Old Testament, they had this preparation. They were told, bring a lamb, a perfect lamb. And, and, and when they brought their lamb, It wasn't that as as they came to the priest, it had to be spotless, it had to be, mustn't be blind or any broken bones. And so when they chose their lamb and brought it to the priest, they're not saying, I do hope the priest doesn't notice. I've got all torn here and I've got mud here. I hope he doesn't notice. No, no, we're not even thinking about how you look. You're offering the lamb. And he takes the lamb and he investigates the lamb. Any broken bones? No. Any disease? No. Is it blind? No, it can see. And he gives you back the lamb. He says, I find no fault in him." Hallelujah. Nothing wrong with my lamb. I'm accepted. As Pilate said, I find no fault in this lamb. Beloved, we've got someone who's perfect, stands on our behalf. I'm not trying to establish my own righteousness. I've got it as a gift. He is my righteousness. I remember once I was praying. It came home to me very vividly. Very vividly. You remember Isaac, as he was getting old and blind, he had one son who he delighted in. He was called Esau. Esau was his delightful son. He just couldn't do anything wrong. He thought Esau was wonderful. And uh, he had another son called Jacob, who was a crook. And and one day, when Esau was out hunting, Jacob put Esau's clothing on, put skins on his arms, because Esau was a hairy man, and came to his blind father, hidden in the sun that the father delighted in. And as he hid in there, he's thinking, I hope the father doesn't say, what are you doing in there? I hope he accepts me in the beloved son. And I was praying one day, and this whole story just came home to me suddenly with great vividness. And I felt God said to me, don't fear that as you come to me in the Son that I delight in, in Christ, that I will find you and say, yeah, you in there. But that as you draw near, as it was with Jacob in Esau's clothing, that as Jacob drew near to his father, his blind father, he said, is that you? He said, yes, it's you. And then he answered, he said, mm, yeah, it feels like him. Mm, I can catch the fragrance. Yeah, I will bless you, my son. I'll bless you, receive blessing. And there's Jacob hidden in Esau going, oh, yeah, all the blessings. Because he's in the son who's delighted. him. Hey, beloved, I am in the son that the father delights in. And God said to my spirit, don't fear that I'll find you there and get you out. No, no. This is the whole deal. Ephesians chapter 1. He has accepted us in the Son in whom he delights. And we are blessed with all spiritual blessings. What, because we've done well? No, but because we're in him. See, sometimes you meet with people and say, oh, I'd love to receive more of the Spirit. I'd love to be speaking in tongues. I'd love this. I'd love that. But I suppose I'm not really worthy You know, sometimes you pray with people and they they, they, they say, well, perhaps God says I'm not ready yet. They're trying to somehow make themselves worthy to receive. Hey, I am hidden in someone who gives me all the worth I need. All spiritual blessings come because of my relationship with Christ, because I'm in Him. Yes? That's who we are. I'm not trying to earn points, I'm in Him. John Bunyan said that one day he was walking In a field. And he saw a vision. Isn't that interesting? John Bunyan saw a vision. And he saw a vision. Of Christ as his righteousness. And he said. At the day he did it. He was feeling quite despondent. Feeling down. And he suddenly saw Christ. As his righteousness. And he said. I suddenly realized. It didn't matter. How well I did. I couldn't add to his righteousness. Or how badly I did. I couldn't take away from his righteousness. But Jesus Christ. Is my righteousness, and He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when I wake in the morning, I'm not thinking, "Well, I hope I can perform well in prayer. I hope I can really be very spiritual in the Bible." God will be no, no. Jesus is my righteousness again today. Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. You accept me totally because I'm in Him. Amen. We step into this. this. Isn't just for the day you get saved. It's for every day. It's the way you resist. The fiery darts of the enemy constantly accusing you. He's coming against you. You put up the shield of faith. You put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is a gift from God. And we say, hey, my heart is safe. No condemnation. Now I dread. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what it says, doesn't it? In Romans 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A friend of mine said that when he first saw that, he underlined it so much, it went right through to the maps. <laughs> there is no... Con- it's wonderful. You can live an uncondemned life as a believer, free from guilt and shame, because God has done this for us by His infinite mercy. One more thing, then I stop. Back to Romans 5, please. Romans 5, we didn't read all this, but I did talk to you about the comparison of Adam and Christ that uh, predominates in Romans 5. But notice, in verse 14 of Romans 5, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. This is last phrase I want to pick up. Adam, who is a type, or is figurative of, him who was to come. Adam is a type of Christ. What does that mean? What does the Bible mean when it says a type of? Well, you find this kind of teaching in the book of Hebrews that some Old Testament people, like Moses, David, they are typical of Christ. They're figurative of how Christ will come. Moses, the great shepherd of Israel. David, the great warrior king. When you look at them, you learn something about Jesus. They are a type of him. Here it says Adam is a type of Christ. How can Adam be? He was a sinner. How come Adam's a type of Christ? Well, I believe in this sense. Adam headed up the human race. At one point, he was the human race. And when he sinned, he blighted us all. The Bible calls us all sons of disobedience. Children of disobedience. That it's in our nature to sin. We were ruined by the fall. And when Adam sinned, we all became sinners. And it's no good say, well, I don't remember being in Adam. Hold on, let's concentrate. No, you can't. This says, the Bible says it's true. That when Adam sinned, we became, a, humanity became sinful. Now, when you were in Adam... It doesn't matter how much you try to get some credit. You know, you might you might go down to the street uh, outside, and busy roads, traffic coming down, uh, and you say, "Oh, it's an elderly lady." Oh, it was a child too. Oh, hold on, hold on, just a moment. Oh, it's clear. On, over you go. There you go. God bless you. Have a good day. Oh, something you would like to go? Okay, sure, yes, certainly. Yes, okay. Here we go. Over you go. Have a good day. Now, you could do that all day. And the Bible says this. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. You think, hmm? Yeah, because you're you're still an Adam. One of the Puritans said, they are but glorious sins. Because, you know, crossing the road, doing all this stuff, doesn't get you out of Adam. So you're still a sinner. Adam is a type of him who's to come. Oh, now, hey, wait a minute. Now, I'm in Christ. Christ is my righteousness. Doesn't When I'm in Adam, doesn't matter how much good I try and do, I'm still in Adam. I'm a sinner. Now, hey, now I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. He's my righteousness. I wake up this morning. He's my righteousness. Now, I go down to the street and there's an elderly lady. I say, excuse me. Now, did that take me out of Christ? No, I'm still in Christ. So if I'm, and so I'm still righteous. Hallelujah. I'm a righteous granny basher. I, see, I'm still righteous. You said, Terry, this is very dangerous. Where are you going now? What is this preacher saying? Are you saying we should carry on sinning so that grace can abound? I've heard that before. ever heard that before? Well, that's the next verse. See, Romans 6, verse 1 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? See, grace is so freeing that it forces that question to the surface. I was once preaching in Spain. I was supposed to be on holiday. My sister lives there. She said, We've got a little meeting. Will you preach on the Sunday? I'm going preach on the Sunday, and I'm halfway through a message on grace, and a gentleman stood up in the congregation. He said, I've never heard anything so outrageous. I thought, oh, oh, wonderful. This is exciting. (laughs) I've never had that before. And I said, sir, if you wait to the end, I think you're being exposed to the scandal of the gospel. I'm righteous as a gift. Shall we carry on sitting there so that grace can abound? That's what seems to surface. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that if you'll never ask that question, you're probably not preaching the gospel. If you preach the gospel for all its freedom, it forces to the top. Can you carry on sinning then? That's what Paul has to argue that. He has to answer that question. Of course he answers it. May it never be. Or as the old King James said, God forbid. (laughs) Or the J.B. Phillips says, as a true Englishman, what a ghastly thought. (laughs) Shall we carry on sinning? no of course not and and chapter 6 expounds all that All right, chapter 6 shows us how we actually can be freed from the dominion of sin but that's the next chapter I want to stop now and we've got the next chapter tomorrow morning I want to stop but you say well Terry this is dangerous you've left it we can carry on sinning you know get in the coffee queue I'm righteous out of my way you know Hallelujah, Jesus, my righteousness, get out of it. You know, <laughs> don't leave it here, Terry, it's very dangerous. I felt, God spoke to me, when I was at school, I used to do art, I did art to O-level, the grand heights of O-level. And uh, you had to do, if you did an out, a, 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 um, a landscape, you wanted a, a, a sky, you put blue, a lot of, a lot of water, a wash down the page, keep it nice and light, and then leave it. And the teacher would say, now leave it. he said, say, no, no, that's not a picture. That's just blue. "No, leave it. We'll come back to it tomorrow. And then you can paint your green field and your brown tree. Said, no, 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 no. That's not a picture. I want to paint my green field now and my brown tree. But the reality is this. If the paint hasn't dried, you can try to paint your green field and your brown tree, but you don't get blue, brown, or green. You get Yuck, all over the page. Because it all melts in. That's what it's a bit like with Romans 5 and 6. It's why people get confused. Because instead of understanding, I am righteous as a gift forever. Now. And stopping there. Now we know it's not the whole picture, because you're going to teach some more in Romans 6. But nothing I will teach tomorrow in Romans 6 will take away from what I'm saying today. It will fill out the picture, but it doesn't change. This reality, I'm accepted because of what Jesus did. I'm righteous. Every morning I wake up, I'm righteous. I'm not trying to keep law. I'm reigning in life through the abundance of grace. The free gift of righteousness. I'm not trying to win acceptance. I've got it as a gift forever. Forever. Every day. I can reign in life now. I can more than... Conqueror, through what he's done. He's leading me in his triumph. Tomorrow we'll paint some more of the picture so can live dangerously for a whole day. <laughs> 24 hours. Don't miss tomorrow's session. <laughs> the vineyard's not ready for that. Okay. Let's receive what God has done for us in making us free. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for sending your darling son your beautiful perfect innocent son lord jesus thank you so much that you fought your way to the cross thank you lord jesus that your friends tried to stop you but you deliberately came not to be served but to serve give your life a ransom be so grateful god you've taken our shame that we might have your righteousness. Thank you, it's not just a philosophical concept, but the very righteousness of Christ. Your perfect, perfect, spotless life. You're never making a mistake. You're never regretting a decision. You're never reading it wrong. You're never flaring up in anger. You're never, Lord Jesus having lust or anything, just pure, spotless. The righteousness of Jesus is mine as I stand before you. And each of ours, Lord, who know you, we are so grateful, God. We thank you, it's ours forever. Lord Jesus, I pray, let this word do us good. I do pray it will fortify. I pray let every individual, every church represented here, Lord, let us be founded on grace. Building churches flooded with grace, living lives free in the grace of God. Lord, let this word do us good, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. You've been listening to a message by Terry Virgo, which has been made available to you by kind permission of Vineyard UK.